0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right, so um, tonight, um, yeah, I just want to share with you my own explorations of dukkha. You know, I like to take these opportunities, you know, when I give a talk to really, you know, what did the Buddha have to say about dukkha and what is my experience with dukkha? So, so Dukkha, uh, one Pali translation is that it's incapable of satisfying. So unsatisfactory, incapable of satisfying. And as we all know, it's the first of the Four Noble Truths. Um, <clears throat> and the Four Noble Truths are of course the, the, the central uh, teaching of the Buddha. and. Um, there's a quote that he has about, uh, you know, the footprint of the elephant is the largest of all footprints. And the footprints of all legged creatures can fit inside the footprint of the elephant. And the footprint of the elephant is the Four Noble Truths. All skillful means can exist inside the Four Noble Truths. So there is suffering. Um, and there is a cause of suffering. There's an end of suffering, and there's a path out of suffering, which is the Eightfold Path. So the way to practice the Four Noble Truths is to get really interested in our suffering. I always like Thich Nhat Hanh's image of holding our suffering like a, a, a little sister or a little brother. We hold it close. We take care of it. So it's an interesting question. What is the ordinary and inevitable pain of being human? And what is the suffering that we create? And this is a kind of life koan, isn't it? Um, And Buddha, you know, adopted a medical model. He said, you know, with this Four Noble Truths, it's like recognizing the problem. What is the problem? What is the prescription? So the problem is suffering. What is the cause of the suffering? And then what is the prescription? What is the solution? So the, the Four Noble Truths is a, a lifelong investigation, but also they can bloom all together in any moment of experience. So I think it needs to be held in that way. So, I thought it would be worthwhile bringing up the etymology of the word uh, dukkha, which is closely connected to the word suka. Uh, dukkha, um, in a sense, meaning uh, bad, sukha, meaning bliss or happiness. The ka, the kha of both of those words, uh, means the hub of a wheel, the hub of a wheel. Uh, and the sukha is like it's good, the dukkha, is it's bad, it's misaligned. So one definition of dukkha is a wheel out of true. It's in misalignment. Um, and I think it's useful to think it's, it's the understanding that isn't in alignment. And because the understanding isn't in alignment with the truth of how things are, we have a bumpy road on this misaligned wheel. And two, just to carry the metaphor one, one step further, What propels this wheel are the forces of hatred, the forces of ignorance, and the forces of greed. And they're depicted as three animals chasing each other's tail, kind of setting this wheel in motion. So there is this truth of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, of stress. and it needs to be understood. So the first step, and I'm, I'm drawing now um, a lot from a wonderful uh, elaboration on the Four Noble Truths by um, Ajahn Samedo. So I really recommend um, this famous kind of discourse on the Four Noble Truths that he offers. Um, so the first step, is admitting uh, suffering into our consciousness Um, and I think you know in a funny way we can be reluctant to do that because it can feel like uh, suffering is a personal failure you know and I think even in Buddhist communities maybe particularly in Buddhist communities there can be a kind of shadow around that like if we're suffering you know, how are you identified? Or you know, like whatever that thing might be, that sort of subtle shadow. So we need to admit it into our consciousness. Um, Suffering is a condition of our birth, and what comes together separates. And we need to expect this. So the Buddha's words, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, Sickness is suffering. Disassociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. Yeah, and to just uh, keep this front and center, um, yeah, I I think is not at all uh, depressing. I feel it's quite liberating, it's quite, enlivening to recognize the fragility, the impermanence um, of our lives. And that can be the cause for us to live with more compassion and less delusion. And I really appreciate these remembrances that we've been chanting, which the Buddha said is the cause for the Eightfold Path to take birth are these remembrances, I'm of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond aging. I'm sorry, I'm of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. So in, in a way, in, in a way that it comes out of need, I keep myself really close to um, to death and and dying and suffering uh, and sickness as much as I can. You know, it's like I think in our culture there's a way of hiding um, these things that are distressing, uh, and we kind of we're living in a way that is is intended to. Kind of protect us from, you know, the the truth of these things, and I think it, it you know, we kind of live in a spell that way. Um, so, um, you know, when when my father died, with Mark's parents, when they died, with friends, when they died, you know, it feels really impactful to take that time to let the heart be broken, to open compassionately, and to learn. And to kind of really learn the impersonal nature of this process and to not, it's not feeling sorry for that person. This is my story too. You know, it's not a separating. This is my story too. So awaking me from the spell that I am somehow exempt. You know, we have this cat bear that uh, appeared at the Prairie Farm Retreat property. You know, he showed up on the compost heap and was filled with ticks and was skinny and scrappy. And um, after a lot of discussion, we decided to to take him home. And uh, he's been kind of part of our household. And and at first. Um, uh, yeah, at first he was a terror uh, in our neighborhoods and in our house and all these things. And, um, but, you know, I've come to really adore this scrappy cat. I really, I love him to death. And, and I, you know, he's an outside cat. He was, came from the outside. He's an outside cat. and He wanders long and far. And I don't know where he goes. He crosses many streets. I heard he went into the birch he is He is a wandering cat and every time i let him out i i feel it you know i feel the fragility may you come back i want you to come back bear i know you might not but i want you to you know and just just sort of like just being sensitive to that feeling in the heart to any clinging that can be let go of but just like each time i let him out i take it as a little lesson you know he might not come back or i might not be back if he comes you know when he comes back you know i'm fragile too This is Jan Chah um, from the Thai forest tradition. He says, in Dhamma practice we uh, begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. It's similar to the way we don't like to look at old people, but prefer to look at the young and attractive. Without seeing dukkha, We don't really look into and resolve our problems. We just bear with them or pass them by indifferently. So the first step is to admit dukkha into the consciousness. And then the second step is to understand it. Dukkha is to be understood versus gotten rid of. And, you know, it's our habit, of course, as sensitive beings, to to run from the pain of dukkha. You know, we run because it's unpleasant, and we we run because we assume there's nothing to be understood. I know this. (laughs) I know this dukkha. You know, I just want to be away from it. So it's a real shift in, uh, a radical shift uh, that is not supported, certainly, by our culture the shift to appreciate that there is something to be understood there's a reason to be intimate with dukkha in Pali um, uh, you know this this you know uh, dukkha should dukkha must be understood understood also has um, understanding also means standing under kind of so there's this flip of uh, Um, standing under uh, in the sense of um, like fully embracing, fully welcoming, standing under dukkha. I have this image of like a redwood forest or a sky, you know, and and just this pervasive, you know, fact of standing under dukkha um, and how silly to quibble with dukkha, you know. It kind of, it just highlights that, how silly to quibble, you know so non-resistance That's an interesting word non-resistance how to embrace so um, the Buddha described three different kinds of unsatisfactoriness and they all Are born out of tanha, born out of thirst or craving, and they're all interrelated. Um, So, if there's first the, just the, we'll call it the suffering of suffering, dukkha dukkha, um, which is, um, you know, as I was talking about before, just part of our contract of being born in this human body with sensitivity and. all the the pain of mental pain, of physical pain, sickness, <laughs> separation from things that we love and care about. This very ordinary, understandable dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. And um, and a lot of what we're we're working with here today. Um, and I I've been you know personally really uh, powerfully impacted by. Um, yeah, learning in certain situations to embrace dukkha, to learn from dukkha. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm a, uh, a teacher and I come from, you know, being a performer, a dancer, and a choreographer um, in, in ways that, you know, this profession in which I'm kind of, it's very public and very exposed. And I'm very reserved. I mean, it's very, um, it's still difficult for me. You know, I've been teaching at Macalester College for 10 years, and still it's like standing in front of a room and having to control the room and, be, you know, just being alive to all the things that happen when you're in front of a room and you're the one in charge. Like there's a level of difficulty with that for me still, and and it was the most poignant for me as I was, you know, starting to learn to, perform as a dancer like these just fears of being exposed in this very primitive way you know um, uh, it really taught me how to work with fear and how to work with self doubt I had to you know because it was so front and center in my experience and and this is ongoing um, you know like like even last night I was just sitting here just so enjoying mark's dhamma talk there's just this Opening, uh, uh, just drinking in the Dhamma, really beautiful appreciation. And then I just very clearly saw it the thought emerge I have to give a talk tomorrow night. <laughs> and it was like, and then all of a sudden, you know, there was, oh, this just self doubt, and oh, this was so good, and oh, well, you know, just this whole dance of fear and a little anxiety you know but it's not new you know it's like that that's the beauty for me it's like you know I I recognize these patterns this sort of ancient ancient stuff who knows why you know it's like I don't even ask that question who knows why I see it come up and and so it's like my go-to place I'm you know in the walking meditation afterwards like oh you know anxiety oh self-doubt it's like just pour it on you know it's like open the space just let, let these energies of self-doubt do their dance. And I let them. I really let them. You know. And it's like getting as big as I need to be. <laughs> Sorry, this makes me teary. To, to really... Um, yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and what's, the, what's the protection? You know, how is it that, that we're able to allow the space of non-resistance, you know, where suddenly there's so much space, there's, there's no more friction in it, you know, there's safety. So it, it, it's, it's an interesting question, and like just this idea of abiding in the mind that knows the experience, the mind that's aware, um, and that's not tangled with the experience. So we have this available to us, to be in that mind that's clear uh, and undisturbed. And and I love the image of, you know, of uh, if if we were to imagine that kind of mind, the metaphor of space, and we throw a brush of paint into the space, it doesn't land, right? Like the space, it just, it goes elsewhere. The space itself is undisturbed. And I think it's just a beautiful... um, uh, if we if we haven't seen that, to look for that, to look for that in the experience, the part of the mind that's stable and can witness um, all the tangle. And it's not like we see it once, right? Like so, I had this walking meditum, very spacious, very. But that was my first thought when I woke up this morning. I have to give a talk, right? You know, there it is again. It's like okay, boom, boom, you know. Uh, you know and sometimes I do resist sometimes you know it's like I don't have the wherewithal to kind of meet it you know and so it's just then we practice patience and we can have compassion and this opening is a movement of the heart it's a movement of compassion as opposed to a movement of hatred because we can hate these things about ourselves we can hate our fear we can hate our self-doubt you know And it's really important to see if that's happening. And I just want to make one other point. Like, this idea of um, whether I give a talk competently or not competently is an entirely different issue. You know what I mean? This is about, this is about, this is an otherworldly aspiration around freedom, you know, no matter what the conditions. So I just want to... Say that it's a separate agenda. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so letting in these afflictive mind states, and I really like that little quote um, Mark gave to me this morning from Uttajania that we don't need to be afraid, right? We don't need to be afraid of our hatred, for instance. Like that's really important, you know. We we need to investigate it. And as long as we're afraid of all our pettiness, all our meanness, all the ways that we judge, right, we'll never, we'll never shine the light on it. It's like, that's not me. That's not happening. So I think we need to kind of understand that admitting all parts of ourselves, everything is included. Everything is included in our awareness. Uh, This is a a poem by Rumi. It's called, The Guest House. He says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So I I also want to um, just like recognizing this example that I, w- I was giving around abiding in the knowing mind, you know, uh, um, that, there, that there is a shift of self, you know, from a, a defended, narrow self to a different understanding or feeling or perception of self. And this also can be an object of investigation, um, looking closely at the sense of self, at, at its how it's really fluid, how it comes and grows, how it gets really solid, how it gets permeable, sometimes how it disappears, you know, like this can be an object in, in our attention. And I really appreciate uh Han's words and metaphor around um, you know, the, the sense of a personal self. It's like a it's like a wave cresting on the sea, right? It has a life but it's from the water, right? It's from this, it's this place that we share. Um, and he just says this beautifully. He says, <clears throat> when we look at the ocean, we see that each wave has a beginning and an end. A wave can be compared with other waves and we can call it more or less beautiful, higher or lower, longer lasting or less long lasting. But if we look more deeply, we see that a wave is made of water. While living the life of a wave, the wave also lives the life of water. It would be sad if the waves did not know that it is water. It would think someday I will have to die. This period of time is my lifespan. And when I arrive at the shore, I will return to non-being. These notions will cause the wave fear and anguish. The wave can be recognized by signs, beginning or ending, high or low, beautiful or ugly. In the world of the wave, the world of relative truth, the wave feels happy as she swells, and she feels sad as she falls. She may think, I am high or I am low, and develop superiority or inferiority complexes. But in the world of the water, there are no signs. And when the wave touches her true nature, which is water, all of her complexes will cease, and she will transcend birth and death." That's from Thich Nhat Hanh's, The Heart of the Buddhist Teaching. And, and just one more quote um, from Krishnamurti. He says, it's the truth which liberates not your efforts to be free i think that's really interesting like so our efforts need to be in seeing the truth not in wishing to be free you know aligning with the truth insight this is not me this is not mine this i am not this is not myself the buddha so all that the first, first um, kind of suffering, dukkha dukkha, um, and then the second suffering, kind of suffering, is um, described as the suffering of impermanence, and um, this just points to the the very accessible and ordinary fact that things that we want, things that we want to hold, that are pleasurable, that are meaningful to us, will go away, you know, and they're suffering because because it's unstable and, and we, things that we don't like, things that cause us, uh, cause us discomfort will eventually, we will have to come in contact with, we will experience. So it's this fragility of pleasure and unpleasure, this, this uh, um, impermanence of objects coming and going, pleasing, unpleasing. And you know, and this is a little bit of an aside, but you know, to, to recognize how kind of our honing device toward pleasure is such a powerful force, you know, in um, in a motivating behavior. And there, there's that uh, metaphor of the of the bull with the ring in its nose that can be handled by an 80 pound boy, right? Because he can, uh, if the if the bull wanders away from Um, where the boy intends, he can tug on the nose and, and that pain, that pain keeps the bull in line. So a thousand pound bull will move through life like this just to avoid the tug of pain. And so I think it's, it's kind of humbling, but I think it's useful to hold that image of ourselves, like, you know, Waiting for that moment till I can have the brownie, you know, and then I eat it and then it's gone. And it's just like these, these things that can be really apparent or they can be really invisible, you know, and we can bring our attention to that. So the suffering of impermanence and this uh, pervasive suffering is the third category, which is sort of a a more subtle, um, form of suffering. which is a kind of background of discontent, a background of anxiety, of insecurity. Um, and this is based on just the nature of all condition phenomenon is unreliable. So this pervasive, quieter suffering, chronic suffering. I've been noticing a little bit of that for me just around kind of the aging body, you know, kind of coming from a dance background. And just like, you know, and it's not a big suffering. It's like a little background suffering, like just feeling my body change. And, and I, I find it really interesting, like I'm noticing this in my own mind, and I see it in our culture too, that there can be a kind of shame around aging, like, and shame around getting sick. Like you know, like we we somehow own like we are somehow personally responsible for the agingness of this body, or that this body has gotten sick, so that's just interesting to kind of shine the light on this quality of of shame um, and also that this body you know is ours, and it's under our control, you know there's that feeling it's under our control, and I've been doing a lot of studying of anatomy you know um, with the buddhist teachings there's kind of reflections on the 32 body parts um, you know as a reflection as a contemplation but also like looking at anatomy like really getting to know the body on this very um, anatomical level and uh, uh, my friend actually she's here she showed me once this video it's called the inner life of the cell right it's this animated video and it's like incredible. It's like the complexity within the cell. It was, like, it was like Manhattan, you know, just just the amount of things happening. And then, but you know, when you look even more deeply, no, no, it's like a solar system, you know, incredible, incredible. And the kind of intelligence and operating things that we are, you know, we are clueless, we are clueless, yet... You know, I am the di- you know I'm the dictator here of this form or, or whatever whatever that is, um, which we can really undermine through this reflection, through this deliberate contemplation and looking inward. <clears throat> so you know, in with this hub this misaligned wheel, one of the misalignments is not realizing the truth of impermanence and one of the misalignments is not realizing the nature of self or not self. Um, I found it just a Another interesting thing I, I hadn't read before, just words of the Buddha, you know, about just this, you know, impersonal nature of, of our human cycles of our lives. And it's just, it's the earlier, um, reflections, but just slightly reworded. He said, I am not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to illness grows ill. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to death dies. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to destruction is destroyed. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to loss is lost. And I think, you know, when we face our illnesses, when we face our aging body, you know, we can hold that close. You know, this is, this is not a personal story. <clears throat> In terms of this sort of backdrop, this background, pervasive, quieter, subtle suffering, um, I just wanted to offer an example of that too, this sort of subtle clinging to self. Um, I was in uh, a yoga class last week, and yeah, it's funny how my my yoga kind of has really deepened over the years, um, and just you know, letting go of a lot of agendas, like I'm just here, I'm just with my body. There's a lot of interest in just being with the body. And so there's, you know, a lot of sustained attention and uh, interest. And um and just the other week, you know, I was like really in my body and and then I just noticed the mind, you know, just this little it was like so soft. It was like this misty rain. You could barely see it. But it was it was just kind of commenting like You do that triangle pose well or feel how free, you know, your legs are when you do that. And look at the woman in front of you who just doesn't quite know where her pelvis is. And look, you know, and, and this is all fine. It's not an issue, right? It's just kind of what the mind does. But I also saw in that quality, there was a quality of slight like clinging, like a quality of like, just something that was like a little suffering just this you know and it, was, it wasn't even it just what interested me and so i just kind of turned my attention like just to these this gentle narration going going on in the background and you know and i saw oh yeah this is just this way of separating This is this way of separating myself in this moment, this way of creating myself in this moment. I'm different from her, you know, because my body's here and her body's there and, and, um, and just this subtle kind of little judgment. And it was just beautiful. And in the moment of like, I see you, you know, and there was a dropping away, you know, it was just a beautiful moment of release. And I could just feel this liberating, Quality of having seen this part of the mind, you know, at least in those moments, sort of a, a free fall, a different experience, just, just to turn my attention, just to notice this was happening. And Tanisaro Biko, I, I, I really love his, you know, he talks about all the different parts of our attention, and he, he, uh, he says, skillful and less skillful members of the committee, you know like different parts of the mind. Um, and so it was like, oh, in, in that moment, there was a skillful member of the committee that was interested in seeing, that was interested in wisdom, and turned the attention. Because sometimes there's a member of the committee that wants to feel a little puffed up. I'm a good yogi, you know? I'm going to feed that, right? So it's like seeing, seeing the multiplicity of committee members <laughs> that, that live inside us. <clears throat> So in terms of um, this quality of impermanence and its unsatisfactoriness, uh, this is Ajahn Chah, he says, um, You see this goblet, asks Ajahn Chah, for me this glass is already broken. I enjoy it, I drink out of it, it holds my water admirably. Sometimes even reflecting the sun is beautiful, uh, in beautiful patterns. If I should tap it, it has a lovely ring to it. But when I put this glass on the shelf and the wind knocks it over or my elbow brushes it off the table and it falls to the ground and shatters, I say, of course. When I understand that the glass is already broken, every moment is precious. So I think it's a it's an interesting metaphor, like this this feeling of, being already broken, not in a bad sense, but just um, we're in motion. You know, we're in motion. We're not held together in the way that we think that we are. And I just wanted to offer um, before we end this. Uh, a friend and longtime um, member of the Common Ground community, Sue Cochran. You know, she's had this long journey with. Uh, cancer, which, you know, she has a terminal diagnosis, and she, she has a blog um, where she kind of just shares her thoughts and ideas, and um, yeah, and so I, I was so moved by something that she said in her blog, I wanted to share it with you, uh, and it's called um, Kintsuji, The Golden Joinery of Love, An Ancient Japanese Art Shows How to Heal a Broken Life. And these are her words on the blog. So, I was surprised and honored to be invited as a keynote speaker last month in Atlanta for an innovative national healthcare care organization. A few years ago, my brother introduced me to his friend, the CEO of this company via email. He is a remarkable leader and writer who follows my cancer journey with kindness and support. We agreed I would focus part of the talk on the terminal cancer diagnosis and how I stay positive, even joyful, despite this challenge. I knew the team was young and I wanted at the very least to be interesting and, if possible, inspirational. I knew it was not going to be easy to simmer my life's journey and message into one hour. I had also just learned the cancer had advanced beyond my brain and bones into the liver and lungs. I sincerely was walking the walk and not just talking the talk, as they say in AA. And then she talks about you know just trying to find you know, just the right theme. What, what was she gonna offer? And, and then she says, um, it was then surrounded by my beloved books, quotes, and poems that I received the answer on how to put the pieces of the talk together. Something a friend, uh, a friend told me in passing months earlier came to mind. She had mentioned an ancient Japanese method of repairing broken porcelain that uses gold to fill the cracks. I remembered loving that idea immediately. More than Leonard Cohen's famous lyric, there is a crack in everything, and that is where the light comes in. For some reason, when I pictured being cracked up inside, I tended to feel a harsh wind coming in, and not the light. This method of restoring breakage with gold is called kintsuji and translates as golden joinery. I did some quick research and discovered that kintsuji is an outgrowth of the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi which honors the beauty of imperfections. The kintsuji artisan uses gold or other precious metals mixed with epoxy to repair the broken piece. This method emphasizes rather than hides the breakage. The repaired piece is often considered even more beautiful than the original. Kintsuji embraces the breakage as part of the object's history. Instead of something unacceptable to be hidden or thrown away, this is the opposite of what I was taught. I learned that I was supposed to be perfect and that I must hide any imperfections. This belief is embedded in our culture. If something is broken, toss it out. If something is flawed, hide it. Kinsuji was the perfect metaphor for my talk on how I was able to find healing in a life that for a long time was not only cracked, but broken apart and in a few places shattered beyond recognition. I no longer think of my broken parts as wounds, they are part of my history and who I have become. As an ancient Kitsuji quote says, the true life of the bowl began the moment it was dropped. So I think, um, I think we'll have a little bit of time for questions, but I wanted to do just a short few-minute reflection together, like um, just a, a few minutes where um, I just would like us all just to choose to locate a stressor in our life right now. Like what is, what is one stressor in our life that we want to reflect on You know, maybe it's a a chronic dukkha, maybe it's a loss. Maybe something dear to you, like your youth, is going away. And just with a real open mind and open heart, you know, how do I relate to this stressor? And we can explore an intention kind of calling on our wisdom, calling on our resources, calling on our creativity, finding ways that maybe we can use this particular stressor, this particular circumstance, to serve an awakening in my heart and mind. Okay. Opening the eyes. Coming back. All right. So um, Q and A. Is that okay, or just okay? Yeah. So we have about um, ten minutes, and you know maybe we can just think of this as like a sharing time, or or if you know this brought up any questions for you that you'd like to um, address. Uh, um, I just had some some questions about that. Um, you talked about like the the place that's that's unmoved by by circumstance. I don't know. I don't remember yeah. the exact words you use, but mm-hmm. um, and maybe this is getting impractically philosophical or in the weeds. But like, is is that the observer or is it an object that can be observed? And is the, is the goal to become identified with that? Um. Yeah, I realize it's sort of, um, you know, the way I worded that was, I think maybe the way I worded that was to abide in the space of knowing, like when is now in the space of knowing, which is a little bit not correct, you know, um, uh, in that way. So I think it's, um, yeah, I think think it's okay, actually, to identify with that. And it's not the final step. But I think it's okay. Um, um and that that can be explored too. Um, you know, how is Andrew the space of knowing? You know, it's it's interesting that this this perception of self can be looked at in each of the aggregates, each of the five aggregates, these heaps, collections, like, is the self in the body, you know, is the self in my perceptions? is the self in my mental activity, and is the self in the consciousness. You know. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.